I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. Bobby Warshaw, the former MLS pro, now the popular face and voice for MLSsoccer.com, he offers unique insights, some of which can lead to debate. Well, I'll have a chat and a little bit of a debate with Bobby in a moment with uh, New York City FC, MLS, and our national teams, the topics. This week, City was off during the international break. They'll resume on Friday night for an Eastern Conference matchup at BMO Field against Toronto FC, the MLS Cup titleist in 2017, who failed to make the playoffs in 2018. Well, the Reds are off to a good start with two wins from two matches They've got a new DP who could debut against New York City, and Josie Altidore is back from injury. Oliver Platt covers TFC for Pro Soccer USA, and he'll join me later to help with a preview. Uh, Bobby Warshaw is a former professional midfielder in MLS with FC Dallas, with teams in Sweden and Norway, concluding his uh, playing career with his hometown Harrisburg City Islanders. He's a Stanford University product, now a writer and broadcaster for MLSsoccer.com, also the author of the book, When the Dream Became Reality. Bobby, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, and it's an honor to be included here. Well, this is cool. Uh, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, read and, and hear your stuff. And uh, well, let's just let's get into week four is complete. The quote unquote international break where 10 teams played. Anything stand out for you? And if you talk about FC Cincinnati, we're going to have to limit it because I, I gave them about 25 minutes last week. <laughs> but OK, uh, yeah. well, if, if they were great, but I can I can hold off on them. Uh, I think the big highlight was watching FC Dallas. This team is amazing right now. Uh, they play certainly the most flowing soccer in the league, probably the most fun to watch. I mean, the Sounders are up there. LAFC are up there at moments. But what Luchi Gonzalez has done, not just finding ways to help young players get on the field and grow and develop, but they all look so confident. And they're not just so confident. They look like they're not scared of making mistakes. And as a player who went through so many different psychological points in my career of being confident, not confident, to see players play like that and be on the ball like that is just fantastic to watch, and they've been really great through the first four weeks. Well, there's Luchi Gonzalez coming up from the academy to become the first-team coach, and you know that's the sort of thing he preached along the way is, is playing without fear, uh, creativity, don't worry about your mistakes, and that's sometimes easier to do on the academy level than the first-team level, right? You know, the weird thing about it is when I saw Lucci's teams play in the DA finals or GA cup, they were intense pressure teams. They weren't possession teams. You know, NYCFC was a possession team. The LA galaxy under Brian Cliven largely was a possession team. FC Dallas was like, we're going to run over you. We are going to press you. We're going to force you into mistakes. We're going to make the game fast and we're going to play the, the game in intensity that you can't keep up with, which is a thing because when you watch a lot of Academy games across the country right now, they are extended training exercises, right? They're casual. Their team's trying to pass through. It's rare that you really see one of these, these MLS Academy teams just go and mess somebody up all over the field. And that's what they did. So I wasn't sure how Lucci was going to play with the professional team. And to be honest, I'm a little surprised that they've been so gorgeous to watch. I did think that he was going to implement something a little closer to the Red Bull system. Interesting. Well, we'll uh, take a close look at FC Dallas as the weeks progress to see how they do in the West. Uh, over in the East, uh, always interesting, and uh, New York City FC. Uh, I, one of my uh, stimuluses <laughs> for contacting you 
and I, you know, you get a lot of this, so I don't know if you saw my retweet, but you were, uh, you do this thing where you, you look at all 24 teams in each week. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. And under New York City FC, mm-hmm. most recently, you talked about Alex Ring and uh, what mm-hmm. you considered was maybe a dilemma considering that he is maybe the top uh, six or one of the top defensive midfielders in the league, and now you're pushing him into an eight role, a more, maybe a more attacking position, and you kind of compared it to N'Golo Conte at Chelsea moving kind of out of position, and Jorginho maybe not handling that six role in the EPL. And I, I, I tweeted you back and said uh, two words, James Sands. I think that's mm-hmm. what makes it work. What do you think? James Sands has been very good, but I, I still think it's a leap to say that James Sands is as good as Alex Ring or is as good as Alex Ring would be in that position. Uh, and it, I feel so. Let me add something here, too, which is like a little bit of context on this. I've been in this position. You know, I, I wasn't doing it for NYCFC for Chelsea, but on the smaller teams in Norden, Norway and Sweden, I was a defensive midfielder who could also pass. So I got turned into this box-to-box midfielder, literally exactly what happened to Alex Ring. And I didn't include it in the story because it's you know somewhat irrelevant to what Alex Ring is going through. But I can also say that from Alex Ring's perspective, he would be better in James Sands' position than James Sands is. And Sands has been good. Um, but it, And I actually just don't think this is – what I'm trying to say is I don't think this is about Sands. I think this is about Alex Ring being unable to, to do something, being the only one on the team that can fit what the coach wants – and Sands has been nice that Sands has been able to do it, but I actually do think that this is independent of Sands. That was a really long-winded answer. There. No, no, and, and this is a good discussion point. I, I, let's get into it a little bit more because I know the previous week you talked about Sands. You, you think he'll eventually float to the back line where mm-hmm. he's played with the U-17, so that's certainly not something that's foreign to him. But part of my point was that Alex Ring is, is much more comfortable in an attacking position, it seems to me, than Conte is. And James Sands, I think, has more of the uh, – and look, and here's the story I want to tell you, Bobby. I, in the preseason of 2017, uh, mm-hmm. I went to Ecuador with the team uh, where they played Emelec. It was in a refurbished stadium, uh, not a hostile crowd, but a partying crowd, loud, just right on top of you. And he started and played the full match. He was the best player for New York City. And the way he plays now is the way he played then. Now he's bigger and stronger I think he can handle it. And I know the 360 degrees is a big part of that position, but I, I, I think he's got more of the qualities to be a quarterback in a 4-3-3 than ring. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disagree with you. I, I'm not positive about this. When I see him get the ball in those 360 degree situations, I don't feel quite as comfortable. I don't think he looks quite as comfortable. Right. Um, but I'm perfectly fine with being wrong. I just <laughs> I do think that I do think that ring looks like a little safer. He looks a little bit more calm in those situations, but you know, you watch them more than I do, and I trust your instinct on it more than my own. Well, it's uh, it's it's going to be something interesting to watch. And now, I thought more intriguing was that Maxi Morales was playing that nine or a false nine, but maybe mm-hmm. uh, that won't last much longer. Uh, New York City has acquired two new attacking players, one that's uh, in full force now, Alexandru Mitritsa, and then uh, the Brazilian Eber. Uh, from the club in Croatia, Rijeka. So, you know, we haven't seen him in a New York City uniform yet, but there's a, there's some certainly some high regard for his finishing skills and the fact he can play the number nine. Uh, but, but what about Mitritsa, what you've seen so far? How would you uh, – we're calling him the Romanian Jovinko, and I don't think that's out of line. No, he's not quite as amazing as Jovinko. But he's close, and he certainly looks the same as he goes about it. Here's, a, here's where I've kind of – 
started to think about Matriza and that he's not in the top tier of stars. He's not quite with Ladero or Piatti or Quintero or Vela, but I think he's in that next group. He's at the top of that next group of players. Lucho Acosta, I would have Diego Valeri in that, Sebastian Blanco. I know a lot of Portland Timbers fans disagree. And that is where Matriza has fallen already. Uh, and you know what's interesting is that when they signed him, I went back and I probably watched his last 10 games in Romania. And I was thinking to myself, 10 million for this guy? You know, like I didn't, I didn't, I did not see what they saw, but it just shows City Football Group, man. Like that scouting network that they have is impressive. And he's already moved into, you know, the top, or the, at least the second, the top echelon of players in the league. I were with Bobby Warshaw, MLSsoccer.com, among other things. And uh, a couple of young players for New York City, Bobby, uh, Juan Pablo Torres, starting for the U-20s. They defeated Japan on Monday. Uh, Keaton Parks has gotten a couple of starts with the U-23s. We, we see Sands getting major minutes. Uh, you know, and Claudio Reyna, the sporting director, has talked about the, the, the change in philosophy. And it's, it's, it's pretty evident now in some of these younger players, although uh, Torres and Parks haven't really gotten a – gotten the uh the minutes for new york city yet I, I think that's coming uh ooh, is it do you feel what so who whose spot do they take though ebenezer afori slides out of the starting lineup or you think it just happens naturally from i'm just worried about these guys i was excited about it when they got there um but they already look to be third or fourth especially when morales drops into the 10 now especially now that, that a bear is there so I like both of these guys as players. I'd like to see what they can do, but it seems to me that they're already fifth or sixth on the depth chart. So I'm concerned about both of them. But like, like you, I, I like them as I players. Think that's, no, I think that's legitimate concern too because it, it appeared at first when they were first acquired that, wow, these guys are going to they're gonna get a good chance and they're going to get some minutes, and especially Parks with the absence of Yanhel Herrera. But, yeah. the, but the emergence of Sands, I, I mean, I, to me, he plays a key role exactly. in a lot of different things going on here. And when they signed him, and please correct me if the timeline is here, I don't think that they had re-signed Ebenezer Ofori at that point. No, I think he that was, his status was up in the air. Yeah, they declined his option and then re-signed him later. Yeah, yeah. so his status was up in the air. We didn't think that James Sands would be one of the, you know, the three starters. Um, so, yeah, when I do, our, you know, I do our depth charts throughout the offseason and through preseason, and I had Keaton Parks penciled in, you know, at the number eight in behind Morales and in front of Ring. And now all of a sudden he's third or fourth on that. I don't know where Torre fits in. Um, and this is my, to go on a little bit of a tangent here, a little bit of a separate conversation, speaking of teams like Dallas and Real Salt Lake, who played six home grounds. I think one thing we mess up about the conversation about these young players on the field is that they are not good enough at their age, most likely to be starters. And even if they are good enough, if you look at the incentives and what a coach wants from a player and how he's going to build his system, you can't blame a coach for going with an older player. You know, someone who's just a little bit more experienced than a Torre at center midfielder, right? You might think the Torre is better than Ofori, but Ofori just has more games. You can trust what he's going to do, and he's more reliable in the system you're going to build. The difference between a Dallas or Salt Lake and then someone like NYCFC is bringing in players over them. So it's not that right. you expect your Keaton Parks or your Torre to be in your starting 11, but at least they're two or three in your depth chart, not five or six, um, which is really, to me, the difference between some of these clubs and how we see an under 20, like Paxson Pomichol, who we remember didn't start week one, only got on the field, or at least, you know, it helped him get on the field when Ja'Cory Hayes got hurt. Uh, so I think it's important to think about how these young players get on the field. So I'm like you, I like Parks, I like Torre, but NYCFC has just signed over them, and I, I don't know how they get on the field at this point. In relation to both Parks and Torres, the, the one thing Reina pointed out 
was that he, I believe he said on six occasions this year, there, there, there are three matches in a week. So he thinks there, there's going to be a place for them to get in. You've got Torres, who's going to be with the U-20s, you know, and Parks, will he stick with the U-23s? It certainly seems apparent. So uh, it, it's a quandary. It's a quandary, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. Before we get, and I want to talk about the U-23s and Jason Christ. Before we get to that, uh, New York City's last match was against LAFC, entertaining 2-2 game at uh, Yankee Stadium. And uh, one of the things we refer to quite a bit, Chris Wingert was my broadcast partner, and we, we Love were... Love Winger. Love Winger. Yeah, he's a good man. And uh, he's good on the air, too, man. Good good analyst. He... he uh, we were talking about that documentary. We are LAFC. We both had watched it, and and I, and I know you wrote uh, a, a little bit on it. And what what stood? If you could point to a couple of things that really stood out to you uh, with We Are LAFC under uh, Bob Bradley. Ooh, so the first thing, the part that I wrote about really was a part that stood out to me is that when you watch Bob Bradley talk about, you know, in his words, talk about football or talk about the football club or the team that he's building, there is so clearly this this high purpose to what he's doing so the guy wants to win but he just doesn't want to win he wants to prove a point like he wants to set this 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 north star in the sky (laughs) that is the best form of football the best most attractive the toughest the most excellent and i think that's pretty cool that might sound arrogant to some people it might sound silly to some people but i think that we can all empathize with the idea that in our own lives and our own occupations to have this higher purpose of what we're doing like if we're going and just punching papers and filling out forms you're not going to do your best work but all of a sudden if you're kind of helping to largely trying to help the homeless or help children or have some larger purpose of what you're doing you're more likely to show up and work hard we don't really want to which happens throughout a season so the fact that the fact that bob bradley has this concept of we're not just here to play soccer we're not just here to win games we're here to really change the way people watch and think about soccer because we can make it a more beautiful complex concept i think it's pretty awesome and makes me want to put on my boots and go play for the guy wow so um, and, and john thorrington uh, yeah. the uh, the gm uh, one of his quotes uh, in the in in the documentary: "The way players circulate is unique to this league." So he's talking about mm-hmm. on the field. And uh, what do you glean from that comment? I appreciate him saying it. I don't think it's entirely true, right? I think if you look at if you look, I, mean, I guess it was a little bit before its time. But the way Greg Berhalter had his three, actually, you know what? I'll I'll say this: he was right in the specifics of what he was saying and their exact rotations and movements. It was true. I mean, Greg Berhalter had done some pretty cool stuff the three previous years. Patrick Vieira had done some some pretty cool stuff, but it wasn't the same in the way LAFC play, largely with how it's like a total circulation. It was a, a 4-3-3, but the the deepest player, Edward Atuesta or Benny Failhaber, Lee Wynn, could move up and another player could drop back. So I would say in the, the specific idea of how they moved, it was true. And the larger idea of how unique it was, maybe not quite as true. All right, Bobby Warshaw with us here, MLSsoccer.com, covering all of the league, including NYCFC, including youth national teams, the full national team. So we talked about Keaton Parks and the U23s, and uh, a coach uh, back in the realm uh, and someone that New York City FC supporters are very familiar with. He was there during their expansion season 2015, Jason Kreiss back on the sideline. Uh, you know, he was a polarizing figure in the Bronx, uh, to be certain, <laughs> fired at the end of the year. 
tough time in Orlando City. And uh, what do you think about uh, Christ with the U23s? Uh, and if you think it's a good idea, why? If you think uh, there are yeah. some things that are, are, are not quite right, why also? So there's, there's two ways you have to think about this. One, it is absolutely a guy getting a third chance, right? He was fired from NYCFC, fired from Orlando City, as you mentioned, and now he's getting a third chance. But the other part of that you have to remember is that it's not like a ton of managers out there want the U23 job. You know, nobody's going to quit their head coaching job to go take this part-time year-and-a-half gig that's not even that prestigious on the world stage. So automatically, U.S. soccer is hiring from coaches who are unemployed uh, coaches who coach youth national teams or youth teams or college coaches. So yes, you're hiring a manager who's been fired twice. Although I think if you look at the circumstances, an expansion team with like Pirlo and Lampard and Villa, it was just a weird situation. Um, and then Orlando city, which is an equally as weird situation. Um, so do you hire that guy who's been fired twice or do you hire Tab Ramos? Who's never coached a professional team, Josh Wolf, who's never been a head coach of a team period, or maybe promote Sasha Karofsky or Jeremy Gunn from the college ranks, right? There's no drop dead obvious answers. Um, so we all naturally would rather see something new. We can say to ourselves, yeah, we should have given Josh Wolf or Todd Ramos a promotion to that gig, but like either way it's a risk. So like most people, I'm not enamored with the idea of Jason Christ taking over, but I understand why it happened. And what it's an important position, though, wouldn't you say? Just uh, you're really preparing players for the next step, uh, more so now maybe than ever when you look at the roster. You are. So there is an experience to playing in these big tournaments and in these knockout games leading to and in the big tournaments. And there's, just, there's nothing like it. There's soccer games in a 34-game season, and then there's a soccer game in a, you know, four-team group where you only play three games or a single elimination game, like these are all unique experiences on their own. And being able to do a, a regular season game isn't the same as playing in a knockout game. Um, and these are the things where, yeah, you want to be playing them in the World Cup, but if you can do it before you're playing in the World Cup at the U23 level, at the U20 level, it's huge. And this is what our players have been missing. So you think about a lot of the guys who are in Cuevo and Trinidad didn't have the experience of playing those same games in the Olympics. So... Uh, it's not, I'm not going to say the Olympics are the most important thing, but they undoubtedly help. Um, and, and it's the kind of way with these big knockout games that our guys could use. And Bobby with the senior team, new coach there, Greg Burhalter. We've uh, gotten a look at some things. And uh, if you could compare to that first press conference where he really outlined his philosophy, and now we've uh, had a chance to see three friendlies, uh, the Ecuador match, the most recent. We're recording this on Monday, so Chile is mm -hmm. next. We won't really have a report on that for you. Do you feel like uh, maybe you could define a little bit about how he wants to play and, and, and the style because he mm -hmm. differentiates style and system? Has he accomplished some of the things that you, th that, that you expected when you heard him first speak? Yes, he has. So when he took over the job, I shouldn't say – the way he played in Columbus with the slow, controlled, intentional possession – was I think what we all want to see the U.S. men's national team do. We watched Spain for all those years and Germany and Brazil before them. We said, why can't our country of 300 million people and any amount of money do the same? And Greg Berhalter had done something similar in Columbus. The question was, was he going to try and replicate it with the national team, given that we don't have Brazilian, Spanish, or German-level players, right? Our players are at a certain level, but they're not 
you know, Philip Lom and Tony Cruz patrolling the center of the field or, or the wide area, right? Um, so would he try and implement the possession or would he go to something a little bit more high, pre- high pressing? Would he say, all right, I don't have Tony Cruz, but I have Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and Christian Pulisic, all three who are phenomenal at closing down the ball. Well, he decided to stick with the possession system, uh, and it's been pretty awesome to watch. I have a worry still, going back to the original question of, do we have not necessarily the players to do it, but the specific player? Because um, when you have this possession style and you intentionally make every pass to manipulate the defense to set up certain situations, you do need that player. You do need that, I mean, who we had in, in Columbus, Federico Higuain who can get the ball in a tight situation and turn and make something happen. And I know we played Christian Pulisic there. I know we played Weston McKinney there, but I'm just worried that we don't have that guy. So I've loved what I've seen, but I just worry if there's like an inevitable fall to come just because Berhalter can't quite, you know, doesn't have a guy for that spot and can't quite solve that problem. So is that the next uh, big developmental uh, player we need? The one that's the number 10? Or is it the nine? (laughs) Or or is Sargent our uh, answer to the number nine? Ooh, I mean, Josie's probably still the starter at number nine. I mean, Josie at his best. The annoying thing about Josie is that he's had so many mediocre games, but when he's at his best, whether it's been for Toronto or the U.S., he's the best striker, right? For me, Josh Sargent is amazing, but still, like, miles off from where we would trust him in a big game versus Josie. Um, But I also think that those positions that – the nine in Berhalter's system is a little bit more functional. Like, let me tell you what to do. It's pretty simple and go do it. The 10 or the eight, 10, both those spots um, are, they're just harder, right? They're, they're not just something that you can tell someone to go do and they go do it. You have to have a feel for being able to pull that off. You have to have a feel for taking the ball in certain spots. And I think if you don't have that player who can take the ball, who can read the game and get into those spots, then everything else kind of, then everything else suffers. And that is what, you know, if we don't do that part, then who we have at the number nine doesn't matter. All right, Bobby, before I let you go, uh, the book, When the Dream Became Reality, mm-hmm. I will admit I haven't read it. How about a brief synopsis to inspire me to, to purchase this? <laughs> yeah, I'll get you, I'll get you a copy then. All right. So <laughs> the, the synopsis is, I read, when I was playing, I read a lot of athlete memoirs, a lot of athlete autobiographies, and I was like, this ain't it. This ain't the life. You know, like one, when you read Steven Gerrard's or Beckham's or all these people, they just, they're so unique. And you read the book for that uniqueness. And you're like, I want to know what Steven Gerrard's life and career is like. That's one thing. But A, they're not always the most honest thing. And B, they're not the average thing. So I was like, I think that I, there's a space for just like an average, mediocre, professional athlete to write about what it's like for the 98% of people who actually do this for a living. Um, so one, you just know what it's like to be that average guy to like truly like know what it's like to get benched or to fight, to get off the bench or to worry about having your contract picked up or disagreements with coaches. Um, but two, I just thought that there was a space to do these athlete books more honestly, you know, like we're like, yeah, it's one thing to say that I got benched and I was upset, but ideally in my book, you can hear like what it's like to try and tell that to my parents and to my girlfriend and like truly how hard it is to go through these things and how wonderful it is to go through others. Um, so I would say those are the two main things. If those interest you about what it's like in a, in a professional athlete's life, then maybe this is the book for you. Well, uh, I look forward to it. A couple of average guys here talking on, on frame, man. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> right, he's, he's Bobby Warshaw, the uh, former professional midfielder, also Stanford university, the uh, writer, uh, broadcaster for MLS Bobby, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Well, coming up, week five in MLS, New York City, they'll travel north of the border to meet Toronto FC. The Pigeons, they have three draws in three matches, while the Reds have only played twice, but they got victories in uh, both those games. Oliver Platt covers TFC for Pro Soccer USA. Oliver, welcome to On Frame. And I, I, in order for the listeners to get to know the writers as I introduce them from week to week here at Pro Soccer USA, why don't you first tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you make it to Toronto? Yeah, so I'm, I'm from England originally, um, but I lived in Canada a little bit as a kid uh, and came back here in, in 2015. And it all kind of started to happen for TFC around that time, obviously, with uh, Juvenco arriving and, and then the two MLS Cup finals. So it was a good time to, to land in Toronto and, and watch some soccer. Well, our first order of discussion in business, uh, Oliver, is uh, maybe to talk about the new designated player recently signed by Toronto, Alejandro Pozuelo. Uh, but it's been a bit of a saga for the Spaniard and for the club. What can you tell us about this? Give us a little uh, history to how this all happened. Yeah, so essentially um, Pozuelo had a release clause in his contract uh, with Genk, which allows him to leave the club for a set fee. Um, but he decided against going to a club in Saudi Arabia um, during the January transfer window who activated that release clause. And so because that had happened and the transfer window in Europe had closed, um, Genk were under the impression that he was he had committed himself essentially until the end of the season at least um, in terms of that release clause being activated. Uh, then obviously Sebastian Javinko leaves transfer FC and they're looking for a new designated player. Um, and they go after Pozuelo and, and they want to pay this release clause. And Pozuelo was a lot more attracted to the idea of, of going to Toronto as opposed to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so it becomes a little bit of a sticky situation and one that, you know, had the potential to go to arbitration as to whether this release clause was still valid or not. Um, fortunately, they managed to, to kind of come to an agreement that Pozuelo would stay in Belgium uh, until last week. Uh, play a few more games for, for Genk as they obviously try and win the, the Belgian title and they're in the Europa League as well. Um, and he'll come to Toronto in time for, for this weekend's game against NYCFC. But yeah, it had the potential to get a little bit messy and in the end they found a, an okay resolution, I think, for both parties, if not a perfect one. So he's 27 years old, uh, full-time player for Genk, uh, a, a team that you, you just uh, outlined it. Uh, playing in the top tier of Belgium, involved in some uh, great competition. So you would think that he'd be, uh, despite the fact he's got to get to know the league and the team, but as far as him fitting in, uh, how do you see that going? I think he should be a real impact player for them, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of similarities uh, between him and Victor Vasquez, who obviously was a tremendous success in Toronto and you know, probably, for my money, one of the best players TFC have ever had, Javinko included, so... Uh, I, I think they'll look to him to replace what Vasquez brought. He's more of a playmaker and a, an, an, an attacking midfielder uh, than a forward. So they'll be looking uh, to him to really be their main creator. And he'll play in a position just behind Josie Altidore, which is going to be a bit different for TFC because they've obviously always played two up front with Juvenko and Altidore. Um, Altidore will, will lead the line on his own this season, I think, for the most part. And, Pozuelo will be that number 10. Um, Maxi Morales, I guess, is the comparable player in, in New York. Um, and yeah, he'll, he'll be looked to, to be really one of the top playmakers in MLS from day one. And I think he, he does have the, you know, the, the resume and the ability to, to do that. Ali Curtis, uh, the club's uh, new sporting director, 
has called Pozuelo the midfield maestro. So there's no uh, <laughs> there's no question that Ali believes he's going to be setting the table for Altidore. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ali Curtis, I think, has spent more time in, in Belgium than Toronto over the past month trying to get this done uh, and seems to have got to know Pozuelo quite well um, over that time. But yeah, as I said, he he has a very similar kind of stats line and track record that, that Vasquez had uh, when he was in Belgium and, and won Belgian Player of the Year uh, before going to Mexico and then Toronto. So if, if he's anything like Vasquez, he'll be very popular pretty quickly. Yeah, so the the former Red Bull sporting director, Curtis, you, you mentioned he spent a lot of time in Belgium because we, we've been hearing about this, what, since January? Yeah, it was the end of January that Javinko left for uh, Saudi Arabia. And that obviously opened up the DP spot and Pozuelo was, you know, the number one target all along. Um, and yeah, all this kind of legal situation unfolded as, as to whether TFC could activate his release clause with Genk having really no say-so or whether, you know, that release clause was even still valid anymore after the previous transfer saga he'd been involved in. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, a real saga to say the least. Not to say that Toronto FC wasn't uh, careful with the previous signings in terms of character and what they would mean to the team, but I saw recently Greg mm-hmm. Vanderveel was uh, was released finally, I guess is the one way to look at it, because there were obvious issues there. Uh, what's the character of Pozuelo, and do you think the club was uh, especially careful on this one? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that was a big thing for them after not just Vanderbilt, but Agra Keche as well. Um, the two players that used targeted allocation money on this time last year, um, both have been released, you know, not even sold to another club or, you know, they haven't got anything for those two players. They've both had their contracts uh, mutually terminated. So I, I think character and how the player was going to fit into the group um, was a big thing. Um you know, Genk fans may disagree given Pozuelo has left the club, you know, a month or two out at the end of the season. But I, I think they certainly feel a lot more confident about how Pozuelo is going to fit into the group. They got references from um, a lot of people, including Vasquez was one of them. Um, and he's someone who, you know, he's in the prime of his career. He's signing a long-term contract. And, and I think he, you know, is, is in it not just to make a bit more money, which he certainly is going to do and, and obviously is an attraction, but he's someone who, as Javinko and, and Altador and Bradley did, um, you know, four or five years ago, he can kind of map out uh, the rest of his prime in Toronto and, and in a league that I think is, you know, turning a lot of heads in, in terms of the way it's growing. Yeah, the, the DP situation's been pretty uh, successful for Toronto, Altador, Michael Bradley, Giovinco, and, and uh, now with uh, Pozuelo. Uh, out of Spain, and you, you mentioned that uh, he's going to be playing underneath uh, Altador. So Altador makes his season debut, scores the game winner in the 80th minute against New England last week, uh, 3-2, a little over a week ago. And you look at Altador, you know, now there's much discussion as to whether he'll fit into Greg Berhalter's plans, which uh, I'm certain that he will when you consider he's got to be still considered the top striker for the U.S. men's national team when he's healthy. But I just look at his stats since uh, 2015. The uh, Only two American players have more MLS goals, Dom Dwyer, Chris Wondolowski. But even more importantly for Toronto, their record when Altidore is in the lineup, 46-26-17. That's 46 wins, 26 losses, 17 draws. 
and 15, 21, and 13 when he's absent. So we know he's been in and out. We know he's uh, prone to having average matches, but the value seems to be there. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think the big question with him this year is, is he healthy? Um, you know, I think last year, I don't think he was fully fit at any point in the entire season. Um, you know, he played through the CONCACAF Champions League with uh, a problem with his foot, which he then had surgery on around April, um, came back uh, later in the summer um, and played the end of the season. But then in the winter, well, it's just in the off season, just gone. He then had exactly the same surgery again. So it, it hadn't cleared up properly um, after that first surgery he had uh, last April. So if he's over that, then, you know, I think he could have a really big year. Alstor says to himself that he hasn't had a muscle injury for quite a long time now. Um, and it's been, you know, problems that have required, you know, more substantial treatment and obviously two surgeries that have given him issues um, over the past 18 months or so. So if he really is over those, um, he is going to be the focal point of this TFC team with Jovinko gone and, and there's the potential for him to have a big season. And, you know, you, you mentioned Dwyer and, and Wondolowski who have scored more goals than him probably just by virtue of staying on the field. You know, I think when you look at his goals per game rate, it's it's really, really good ever since he's been uh, in Toronto. So it's just about, you know, putting 34 or obviously not 34 because he's missed one, but somewhere close to, to 30 games together. And, and if he does that, then I think, you know, I don't know if there's uh, many better strikers in MLS than him. Yeah, and you're referring to the uh, the hamstring issues that were very frequent a good portion of the mm -hmm. career, and they, they seem to have been um, eradicated, which uh, um, is great news for him and Toronto. Oliver Platt covers Toronto FC for Pro Soccer USA here with us to uh, preview this game a little bit. What do uh, Greg Vanny, the manager, and the rest of the team think about the, this New York City match? Uh, any indication? The, uh, the record overall for Toronto in the regular season, anyway, uh, is not good. They've lost their last two matches to uh, New York City, but that was during the uh, 2018 campaign, which is one they'd like to forget. I mean, is 2019 a, a comeback year for them? Do you sense that? And what do they think of this uh, club for the Bronx? Um, I, I think they've got a long road to, to go on in terms of getting back to contending for MLS Cup Toronto. I think you know, they the big problem last year was they couldn't defend, they couldn't keep goals out, and they really need to start, you know, from that foundation and, and build out over the first few months of the season. And then we'll see where it goes. Um, I think any time you lose big players like Vasquez and, and Javinko, there's, you know, a little bit of rebuilding there. Um, obviously, Bradley and Altador are still here, and they've invested a lot of money in Pozuelo, so they plan to win now. Um but I think there will just be that little bit of kind of retooling in the opening months of the season and and, and finding their feet again. Um, as for, for New York City, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I think probably TFC fans don't really know a whole lot about this NYCFC side. Um, you know, obviously it was, you had the big names there and Villa and Perlo and Lampard and Patrick Vieira for a couple of years and it was a very recognisable team. Um, now I, I look at the lineup and there's obviously, you know, younger players, players who have come from maybe um, smaller leagues or different backgrounds that we haven't necessarily heard of uh, on the face of it, but maybe have a bit more upside and, and are in the prime of their careers. So it'll be interesting. Um, you know, obviously Greg Vanny had a pretty good time of it against Sierra, um, the infamous 2016 playoff series in particular, um, but not so good against against Toronto so far. So 
yeah, it'll be, it'll be nice to see this return to being a kind of top Eastern Conference battle this season after a bit of a, a disappointing year for both teams, I think. All right, Oliver. Well, uh, we look forward to your uh, thoughts on this and uh, your uh, post-game analysis and report for Pro Soccer USA, which uh, will be after the match on Friday evening uh, in Toronto. Great to meet you, Oliver, and uh, look forward to chatting again. Thanks, Glenn. Anytime. So Alejandro Pozuelo, introduced on Monday, is training this week with TFC, so the expectation is he'll be in the 18 for Friday night's match. That's probably not the case for Aber. The latest acquisition for New York City FC, the Brazilian, uh, he's yet to arrive in the States, visa paperwork still to be issued. In my latest for Pro Soccer USA, even Mance, the deputy sporting director for Aber's former club, Rijeka, in the Croatian First Division, gives a complete evaluation of the 27-year-old, and it's a very positive appraisal of the 5'11 striker. Finally, this Saturday, the EMLS Cup is taking place in Boston, Massachusetts. Chris Holly will represent NYCFC in uh, this flagship tournament for MLS. Uh, Holly considered one of the best FIFA players in the world. So he'll be looking for his first EMLS Cup title. 22 of the 24 teams in MLS have these eSport athletes. So these are really big moments for the clubs and their players. And you can tune in live on Twitch on Saturday afternoon. And I'll be uh, tweeting the link to that stream later on. And we'll see how Chris does. Hoping to have him on a future episode. And that'll do it for On Frame This Week. I'm Glenn Crooks.